Why don't we all just take a big collective breath together while I settle in? You can notice the light in the room if you haven't yet. Notice the good kids art on the wall. It's good to be here with you all. If you don't know me, my name's Blythe, and I'm just really happy to be here with you in person on this fourth Sunday of Advent. This morning, we're going to be spending our time in the lectionary reading from the Gospel of Luke, uh, verses, or chapter 1, verses 39 to 55, which Lilia read so very beautifully for us earlier. I don't think she's in the room anymore, but thanks, Lilia. And in this text, Mary, who is newly pregnant with Christ, uh, she visits her cousin Elizabeth, who is pregnant with John the Baptist. Both of these women are improbably pregnant. It's kind of a wild story. You probably know it. You're probably familiar with it, but let's revisit it together. First, there's Elizabeth. All her life, she'd prayed for a child. If we'd read the whole of Luke 1 this morning, we would have learned that Elizabeth has been unable to conceive. And in her world, the main female role was maternal. It was a role of childbearing. So all her life, she'd failed to live up to this expectation, both probably her own expectation for herself and also certainly her culture's. Drew Jackson explains this well. Oh, I just noticed we don't have any slides. Oh, we good? You're doing beautiful work, Charlotte. <laughs> Um, yes, Drew Jackson, right here. He explains that barrenness in ancient times was viewed as a sign of God's disapproval, or at least a sign that one did not rest under God's favor. And Elizabeth herself, she uses the word disgrace to describe her childless situation. And that Greek word there for disgrace, it's actually comparable to our English word for shame, which is a bad and powerful feeling. And as an older woman, she's lived with this shame for a long time. Now, we don't know a lot of the details about how she's been disappointed by her life, but we can imagine them. That's Elizabeth. And then there's Mary. Scandalously unmarried Mary. Virgin, but mysteriously with child. At risk of being convicted of adultery. adultery. Uh, and so young. Just a peasant girl in many ways, really. Both these women are failing to live up to the roles their world placed upon them. One married, but without children. The other unmarried and with a child. Their situation is one where people of their day would see the absence of God. And it's into that that God chooses to appear. Luke writes, when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. Elizabeth sees something here, and this starts a cascade of subverted expectations of social reversal within the text. First, Levitical law would have had Mary stoned for being pregnant out of wedlock. But Elizabeth instead rejoices at taking her little cousin into her home as an honored guest. Elizabeth is what's known as Mary's older kinswoman, so she holds a more esteemed social position in their family. 
And yet she greets Mary with this humble openness, lowering herself to her little cousin. There are many ways Elizabeth could have responded to Mary. Resentment at the ease with which she got pregnant, perhaps a cold shoulder for the shame that she might bring on the family. But instead, Elizabeth responds with an open and spirit-filled heart, embracing her baby cousin and celebrating the life she carries. Elizabeth is filled with prophetic abandon, calling Mary blessed, blessed, blessed. Four times she proclaims that. This is a story of reversing expectations and of the great restoration that the life of Christ brings in places we least expect it or often overlook. And it's a story about having eyes to see just that. Judith Jones writes that Mary is blessed because despite all expectations, her social status has been reversed. She will be honored rather than shamed for bearing this child. Elizabeth sees grace where others see scandal and shame. And in seeing this, Elizabeth empowers Mary to praise God for his surprising ways too. This morning, we lit the candle of love. One of my favorite definitions of love is that love is attention. Simone Weil says that attention presupposes love. And I have to confess that's a bit of a paraphrase because she is a French philosopher and is so wordy. So um, maybe don't directly quote that as you go forth from here. Uh, put more plainly, Mary Oliver says that attention is the beginning of devotion. I'm sure we've shared that quote before, but it totally bears repeating. And here in Luke 1, God, God pays special attention to Mary and Elizabeth. And then each bear witness to this attention in the other's life as well. Attention, you probably know, is a very basic human need. Uh, I learned recently, actually, Nelson, you taught me this, that children will develop serious problems without adequate attention from a caring adult during their childhood. Things like touch and just a general sort of caring response when withheld in the extremes can cause serious problems later on in life and even result in death if indefinitely withheld. We are wired for, created for mutual attention. And here in Luke, we see God lavishing Mary and Elizabeth with attention. This is not just some abstract theoretical love, but rather a loving attention that is deeply invested in and deeply attends these women by dwelling in and among them. Through the incarnation, God lavishes our whole world with attention. I love the etymology of the word attention. I think it reinforces this idea that attention is love, and it, it highlights some of the connections that um, the incarnation has to attention as love as well. The word attention comes from a Latin word, probably pronounced attendere, I'm not actually totally sure, um, which means literally to stretch towards, to extend oneself. And through the incarnation, God's divine self stretches towards us, extending God's self into human form. Mary herself testifies that God's mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. She says that in the Magnificat.
That's love, God's extended mercy to us. I recently learned that the incarnation is not God's plan B for the world. Someone very wise pointed this out to me. Until recently, I'd kind of thought of the incarnation as this great disruption, something that interrupts our timeline, interrupts our cycles of life and death with this life of resurrection. And while that's really nice language, and it does hold some truth to it as well, it also kind of implies this panicked response to something gone horribly wrong, a reactionary plan B on God's part. When, in reality, Revelation 13.8 calls Jesus the Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. So no, the Incarnation is not just a plan B. God with us and for us is actually part of the way this world is made. A world formed from God's love for creation, always longing to extend towards us. Christ with us and for us, it was always part of the plan. Colossians 1.17 says that Christ is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And when Mary visits Elizabeth, John leaps, and we read about the first human recognition of Christ's bodily presence on earth. But in reality, Christ's presence has been holding all things together far before the incarnation. Colossians again, for in Christ all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. In this, the incarnation is simply part of our world's foundation, a historic event to be sure, but one that illuminates a timeless, eternal reality that God was always for us and is always extending himself in love to us. And as John leaps, Elizabeth sees the first signs of God with us in the flesh. I like how Kathleen Norris puts it, saying that sometimes it just takes a good kick to recognize that God is in our midst. It's important to note who recognizes God here, too. Who is the prophet? Who reveals truth in this story? It's an old, disgraced woman, supposedly barren, uh, kind of an archaic word there, urged by her fetal child, and a peasant girl with a scandalous womb. Filled with the Spirit, both Elizabeth and Mary see the life of God where others see two lives gone wrong. I'm particularly fascinated by Luke's inclusion of the detail of John's leap here. Of course, it highlights John the Baptist's spirit-filled ministry, and it certainly underlines the close relationship that John will have with Jesus uh, and all the ways that their ministry will intersect. That's happening there for sure. But I wonder if it does a little bit more than that, too. Even if Luke didn't intend this per se, John's kick, that leap in the womb, it strikes me as hugely symbolic. And if Mary and Elizabeth were writing this story, two women who had carried babies in their bodies, who knew the importance of those kicks, well, I wonder what they would say about that leap. In pregnancy, the baby's first kick is called the quickening. It's from an old English word, which I am not even going to attempt to pronounce, but you can see it on the screen there, um, that means come to life or receive life. 
Now, this isn't exactly the quickening. It isn't John's first kick. Luke writes earlier that Elizabeth is six months pregnant when Mary comes to her, so she's probably been feeling the baby for a while now. But even then, even six months in, those kicks are very welcome things. Often, not always, the quickening is an especially welcome thing because we women and birthing people spend about 90% of our pregnancies worrying that the baby is still there. Being pregnant is really scary work. Believing that unseen work is actually happening, even and especially when we can't see it, takes unfathomable trust. And as too many would-be parents know, new life is incredibly vulnerable. Babies are often lost during the first three months of pregnancy, which is a horrible grief. And which is why those kicks mean so much. I still remember the first time I felt my daughter Maggie kick. Um, you were kind of all there too. It was Easter 2020, the Good Friday service on Zoom. You know, we were a couple weeks into the pandemic and thought, yeah, we can get through this with a few, few weeks of this. It was like, I don't know, one of the first church services we did online. <sighs> Naive little Blythe. <laughs> Matt and I were sitting on our couch and we were singing along with the worship leader and with many of you, muted, thankfully. Um, and yeah, I just felt this tiny little pitter-patter of limbs against me for the first time. I felt joy, but mostly I felt relief. Suddenly this abstract idea of our child's presence became a concrete and tangible reality for me. She really was here with us, becoming human in me. I lived for those moments from that point on, these steady reminders of Maggie's presence with us, her nervous parents. Parents can still lose babies after the baby kicks, which is a devastation that I cannot imagine. But when all goes straightforwardly, those early kicks are a reminder that increases in intensity. Little leaps that continuously proclaim, there is life here. I know you can't see it, but life is growing, quickening. While this probably isn't John's first kick, there is a sense in which his leap signals not only his own life, the life in Elizabeth's womb, but also the life that Mary carries and the life of the spirit that fills both women here and then extends into our world too. I love how Chloe Radaway summarizes all of this. Commenting on this scene between Mary and Elizabeth, she says, there is a sense of the quickening of all creation of something utterly new taking form in the dark, watery void, of the opening verses of Genesis echoing in a virgin's womb. This is picking up an idea from early church, church tradition, which in turn comes from scripture. Uh, Athanasius says in On the Incarnation that all things are quickened and sustained by Christ. Sounds a little bit like those Colossians verses earlier, doesn't it? And in this sense, God's dwelling in Mary is not just loving attention towards her because she's found favor with God, much like John and Elizabeth is a loving attention that is bigger than her own personal longing met, though it, of course, includes that too. Athanasius knows that through the incarnation, God showed God's sustaining, attentive love for all things, 
a felt presence with all creation. The incarnation, then, charges all life with sustaining grace. A meal, a painting, a body, a sacrament, every ordinary moment, every mess of life. I want us to look at some painted depictions of this scene together. This first one by Lauren Wright Pittman, uh, I love so much. See the way the painter highlights God's life charging out of both women, starting small in the center and working outwards, spilling into the world. This next one, I think, maybe says that a bit more clearly. I don't know if you can see that. That's by a painter named Jen Norton. I just love the way that all creation is illuminated here. Yeah, it's so beautiful. This last one little less majestic. Um, this is me and my own friend Elizabeth. Coincidence? Yes, very much so. <laughs> um, Liz is one of my dear, dear friends. That's her on the left and I'm on the right. And uh, yeah, she was my youth leader in high school. I've known her since I was 16 years old. She is my older kinswoman of sorts. And we were pregnant at the same time together last summer. Liz was due with her son about six weeks before Maggie was born. So obviously we had to recreate a visitation image. But I didn't just include this picture because it's funny, um, or at least funny to me. I included it because I wanted to share how Maggie, my daughter, who I am carrying in this picture, so she's teaching me to see the incarnation everywhere. To recognize, like Mary and Elizabeth, the presence of grace in spots we might overlook or write off as unspiritual or even see as spaces that God has abandoned. Trees, dogs, the moon, stuffed animals, the seagull who sits on the street lamp outside of our apartment. Maggie waves at all of these like they are bursting with life. Which they are, I think, according to this logic. Ordinary to me, maybe even sometimes nuisances, they are everyday grace to her, charged with signs of God's sustaining presence. Kids see the world for what it really is, grace and sacrament. To see the world as sacrament just means to see creation as a visible sign of an invisible grace, a tangible, tactile sign of God's love, a sharply felt kick of what's always been there, God's love holding all things. Because of her fresh new eyes, Maggie's world is saturated with reminders of this. And in her wide-eyed way of seeing the world, she is teaching us, her parents, to see better, too. This next image is the start of the greatest slideshow of all time. Um, just to kind of illustrate what I'm saying a little bit, I thought I would share some, um, yeah, some, some photographed documentation of what I'm talking about here. This is Maggie kissing a chipmunk at Grandview Park. I think she probably kissed that chipmunk about five times before I convinced her to leave. So sure that it was just so alive. This is Maggie kissing a sloth in the gift shop on the BC ferries. Um, I'm not totally sure that's COVID safe, but taking a ferry with a baby, desperate times. Um, she was just really into the sloth. 
This next one is my favorite. Um, you might recognize that. That is the snowman um, decoration from Strathcona Brewing just a few blocks east of us. And I went there to pick up some drinks last week before dinner, and it took probably 15 minutes to leave the shop because Maggie kept going back to that snowman to give him a kiss on the nose. Um, yeah, she, again, was just saw something there that I didn't see. This next one is a poster in our building elevator. It says, dear dogs, we love you, but please do not pee in here. And there's a photo of a dog. Matt and I read it, and we grumble that our neighbors would allow such a thing to happen, that they would just walk away without cleaning up dog pee. But Maggie, lover of dogs that she is, sees something entirely else. Um, in fact, Matt actually wrote a poem about it, and he gave me permission to share it with you. It's called The Dog in the Elevator. So I'm going to read you that poem right now. Nyan has put up posters in the elevator, asking residents to please clean up after their dogs. Too many puddles pooling, and the floors are sticky with beer-colored urine, and beer too. When I see the sign, I am struck that people are just leaving tributaries of piss behind. But the sign grips you for another reason. Every time you enter the elevator, you are stunned by the regal golden retriever. Printed in black and white, he stands tall. A glint of a smile at the edge of his snout, a softness you so clearly want to burrow into. When you see the dog, you let out a leap. Delighted by the sight of him, you do not care about the words hastily typed up below his image. The implication of urine means nothing to you. Instead, you imagine the gift of fur in your hand and the warm body circling the elevator before relieving itself. The invisible stains and extra work for tired managers. It's beside the point, you argue. See the dog. Yeah, you can give Matt a little snap there. He's not here, but I'm sure he'd appreciate that. <laughs> Matt and I are two people who are just prone to grumble. Parenting is hard. We grumble a little bit more these days. I don't want to just paint a picture of everything being rosy and easy and magical. Though it is that too. And our daughter's enchanted worldview has been a grace to us in this season because it points to the way our ordinary lives, lives that are filled with struggle and disappointment, are indeed charged with grace. In general, kids are pretty good at seeing what we can't. They have a pretty good perspective on life, one that's instructive to us if we would allow ourselves to be their students. That might seem kind of backwards, but that's kind of the way of God to be backwards. He's sort of into that. Jesus himself has a few things to say about the way kids see the world. Truly, I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. I wonder if he's talking a little bit about their sacramental vision here. When we hear about needing to learn from children's enchanted, grace-filled worldviews, I think we can dismiss it as sentimental, naive even, and certainly irrational. 
But you know who is rational in Mary and Elizabeth's story? Joseph, who we learn in Matthew, is politely arranging to quietly divorce Mary, a very kind and rational thing to do in this situation. Zechariah, the religious professional, uh, Elizabeth's husband, he's extremely rational when he says to the angel, how can I be sure of my wife's pregnancy? I get that question. It makes sense. But in contrast, there's those who are a little lower on the social ladder here in this story, who are most open to seeing God. Elizabeth, stigmatized as outside God's favor for most of her life, and then Mary, in many ways barely an adult, still a child by today's standards. Both these women respond with wonder and awe, naming God's grace and presence where others would just write it off. Moved by God's attention to her, Mary then delivers a proclamation that radiates God's attention outwards, showing the way he's dwelling with those who are overlooked, working on their behalf. Just going to read it a little bit for us again. Mary says, From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. The word of our Lord. The Magnificat is threatening to those of us who have it all together, to those who are too proud for God, to need him, maybe to see him. It's actually been banned in the recent past in a few different countries for how radical it is and for the the radical hope that it brings people who are lower on the social ladder in India, Argentina, and Guatemala. Banned because it illustrates a real attention to those who are often overlooked by the world. It reinforces what Mary and Elizabeth's experience testifies to that God is always paying attention to the people and the places that the world overlooks or writes off. And we do, good atten- we do good to pay attention to that. I like how Kathleen Norris puts it when she says that the Magnificat reminds us that what we most value, all that gives us status, power, pride, strength, wealth, that can be a barrier to receiving what God has in store for us. If we have it all or think we can buy it all, there will be no Christmas for us. If we are full of ourselves, there will be no room for God to enter our hearts. Mary's prayer of praise, like many of the Psalms, calls us to consider our true condition. God is God, and we are the creatures God formed out of earth. The work of the Magnificat, a song that praises God for the kingdom's countercultural work of reversal and restoration, it's a work that begins in the lives of Mary and Elizabeth. They knew it intimately. 
which I think makes this response that much more powerful. God's attention to Mary is the kind of attention that will save the world. And Mary knows this. Quite literally, it will save the world. For God so loved the world that he gave us his incarnated son. And Mary's attention back in response, well, it just magnifies the saving grace for all to see. I think sometimes these days, we might live in fear that God has left the building, so to speak. These days in particular, the wounds that we've inflicted on creation are painfully obvious, and some of us might wonder if God has functionally left us to our own vices. How can we see a world charged with God's presence when there are so many wounded places crying out? This is a real question that I ask myself. How can we see a world that God prolongs himself into, sustaining it with his grace, when so many suffer under bad power? The answer, in part, I think, lies in the incarnation itself. God with and for wounded people and places illuminating their worth with loving attention and presence, extending God's grace to all things. We long to enact the Magnificat's vision into existence, which I totally get and is good. In a lot of ways, we are wired for shalom. We are made to serve and keep God's just rule for this world. We want to join God in this kingdom work. That is good, but I wonder also if right now our anxious world, one that is fearful and wondering where God is, also just needs more people with Mary and Elizabeth's sacramental vision. More people willing to see God's life and love unfolding where others can't see it or just see its absence. I want to ask Mary and Elizabeth about all this. Truly, I wonder what they would say, prophets that they are. Maybe they'd talk about how this world is tethered to its creator, like a baby to its mom. I don't know. But because they can't speak, I'm going to take a huge left turn here and close with some words from the agnostic prophet slash musician Nick Cave. Some of you might know him. God speaks through all creation, even aging Australian uh, post-punk, I think, maybe, artists. I don't know. Aging dad rockers? I'm not sure. Um, there's, I don't know, possibly some theologically questionable content in some of his stuff, but there is also such gold here. So I want to share it with you. Uh, this is from a newsletter that Nick Cave has, a little like email newsletter he sends every month or so. And in it, he answers fans' questions. The questions are broad, wide-ranging. And this month, this December, one of the questions came from Maro, who writes, I'm 17 years old. What can you tell me about love? In response, Nick says, It is your duty to love in whatever way you can and to move boldly into that love, deeply, dangerously, and recklessly and restore the world with your awe and wonder. This world is an urgent need, desperate, crucial need, and is crying out for love, your love. It cannot survive without it. You will discover that love, radical love, is a kind of supercharged aliveness 
and all that is of true value in the world is animated by it. In other words, I think you will discover God's quickening love that is before all things and in whom all things hold together. So may you discover that love even more this Christmas and also here at the table.